0: G'day, Dominic Barfield here, and this is the RVC Clinical Podcast. Thank you for listening, and thank you for subscribing on your smartphone, your generic fruit-based device. I'm really grateful for you taking the time to download and listen to this RVC podcast. We don't ask for much for return, but we're incredibly grateful if you could pop to Podcasts podcast, or Acast and leave us a review. I've learned that Spotify, you can't leave a review, but anyway, if you listen to us on Spotify, well done. Obviously, a five-star review would be great, um, but we could really appreciate if you could take a couple minutes of your time to leave us a review. So, joining Brian and myself um, in our remote studio, we're going to talk to Dr. Sean Frassini, who is one of our lecturers here, or our only lecturer here in at the RBC in Veterinary Clinical Microbiology. So, thank you, Sean, for, for joining us. Thanks, Dom and what we thought we'd um we'd talk about is um sort of interpreting some of the 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 the, the information you get back from uh, a laboratory in particular um, micro labs the minimum inhibitory concentration but I thought before we maybe um start that off maybe we should we should think first about when we submit samples to for microbiology assessment. Um how, how should we how should we do that, Sean?
1: Yeah, so I think that um probably in terms of sample prep, actually bacteriology is relatively simple. Um bacteria need a transport media um to be contained in. So you'll often see swabs with either a clear or a dark liquid or sort of semi-liquid media that you put the swab into. And that transport media is Basically protecting those bacteria from desiccation, so it's stopping them drying out. And different species of bacteria are more or less inclined to dry out. So it basically just protects our sample that whatever's growing in there is likely to still be in there when we get it to the lab. The only difference between the different colours of media you see is that the black is actually charcoal, and charcoal supports the. Um, Protection a bit better time wise. So, you can probably get up to 72 hours of good viability from a swab stored in a charcoal media than you can in, say, a liquid Amy's without charcoal. It's clear. But realistically, for most people who are submitting swabs and they're being processed the next day, either transport media is fine. The key thing is you just don't want a dry swab that's being submitted for bacteriology. yeah, go.
0: On. Oh, I was just going to ask. So, if it's something like urine or, or fluid, so say say hmm. from um, pus, is there is that and do, should you swab those as as well?
1: No. So, if you've got a fluid, then that fluid's actually protecting those bacteria in itself. Um. So, if you're submitting in a fluid, something like a urine sample, then that is there and it's great and it's acting as that, stopping drying out of the bacteria. The only thing I'd say is things like urine samples, certainly in our lab, are often submitted for urinalysis and a culture. There wants to be plenty of samples to do both of those things. And sometimes it might be easier for that sample to be split into two pots. Um, If you're doing that in the clinic, you know it's been done aseptically. You know you haven't introduced any potential other bacteria in there in its handling When it comes to the lab, obviously they do try to split things aseptically, but it's not always the best environment because our labs obviously have bacteria and things in them. So a nice two samples one for analysis and one for culture is actually really handy to have because it means straight away we could just take one to the bacteriology lab and we know that the only people handling it are the people who are microbiologically
0: trained and maybe when we're talking about submission of samples as, as well so how about if, if someone wants to submit a, a tissue sample what's that the best way to submit that for culture
1: yeah so tissue samples are a tricky one for us in the lab um Some labs have really good dedicated tissue handling um, sort of setups. We don't in our own internal lab. But I mean, in general, again, this principle of protecting the bacteria in the sample is there within tissue. Um, In the lab, however, what we want to do is we want to try and macerate it. So break it down a bit um, to try and release those bacteria potentially. And we'd normally then put a tissue sample into broth, so into a liquid medium, We'd grow that overnight and then we'd use that broth to put it onto our agar plates to then culture whatever bacteria we've got. So the one thing to keep in mind, I guess, with a tissue sample is that there's going to be a generally a day's delay because we need to grow it into some broth and then take that out and put it onto a plate to be able to look at what the bacteria look like. So we're going to have that little bit more delay. Um Obviously, in our own internal lab, it's a bit easier if people talk to me, I can supply that broth so the tissue can go straight into it. So there's less delay. Um, But yeah, I mean, in general, all of these other sample types actually protect the bacteria quite well because that's what they're doing in the body. They're protecting the bacteria and keeping them sort of in a site that they want to grow
0: so when you when you get a a sample in the lab so is that is that always sort of plated up on a a multiple different different plates or could you could you take us through maybe the journey of what what you would normally expect at a microbiology lab
1: yeah sure so in the samples and i think this is one the key thing is that is a kind of a call that microbiologists in the lab know a lot about the bacteria they might be expecting to see um, and so the more they know about the sample coming in, the more they can guide which of those plates to choose that they're going to play to sample up. So if we have a sample coming in that we know is from a respiratory tract, and we're expecting we might see things like streptococci, or we might even see if we're talking about horses, we might even be seeing an actinobacillus that we know can't grow on a standard blood agar and needs a chocolate agar. We can really guide our choice if we know what the sample is. But if the sample that we've got in is just a fluid and it says fluid, we have no idea what we might even be thinking of growing. So the lab will decide what plates to plate something on based on what the type of sample is. So the more information we have about where the samples come from, any previous culture results, any antimicrobials that the animal's been on, Anything like that helps us to guide that choice. But yeah, in general, the lab will choose plates. They'll always have a what we call non-selective enriched agar. So normally blood agar because almost everything will grow on on blood agar. The problem with that is because everything will grow, you can get a bit of a higgledy-piggledy mess if you have lots of pathogens. So we might then, say, use a Moconki agar because that will grow our Enterobacteriaceae really well. Or we might use a specific Staph strep agar. Um, So they will choose those plates according to what sample has come in. Um, In general, we'll assess growth overnight, so 24-hour growth. Um, Incubation is normally 37 degrees. Things like fungal cultures will be incubated at different temperatures. We might have something like an anaerobic culture set up. So most samples will also get anaerobic culture. So they're kept in sort of anaerobic jars. Um, And they have a metronidazole disc to show that we've got an anaerobe because metronidazole would only act against anaerobes. Um, And then the next day, the plate's taken out and they look at literally what, what do the colonies look like? And for a lot of microbiology technicians, they can make some estimated guess- guesses based on the type of sample and what the col- colonies look like as to what they think that likely species is going to be. Is it a streptococcus? Is it an E. coli? That kind of thing is quite easy to look at if you're used to looking at plates in the lab. And when
0: you're looking at these plates in the lab, Sean, do you do you look for, so, so there sometimes might be contaminants and is part of the skill to recognise that those are just contaminants and is that from the amount of growth you get on a plate?
1: Yeah, so generally speaking, yes. A contaminant is, is tricky. It depends on what the sample is. If you send me a blood culture, I shouldn't be reporting back that there's any contaminants. So there are going to be some samples where we will say whatever growth we get is significant. Whether it's a little bit of growth or a lot of growth, it's significant. If, say, instead you're sending me um, a swab of the upper respiratory tract or of the skin, then we have to start thinking about how much growth there is. So is it a really small amount of growth? And especially when you get samples that are really mixed, so you've got five or six different colonies growing. They're only growing on the initial part that you've inoculated the plate. That's likely to be contaminants. But it's also what those species are. So what we know about infectious disease is actually most infectious disease is caused by the bacteria that are normally residing on or in the body. So realistically, a contaminant that is normally you know something that's normally commensal on the skin can also be causing disease so it's a little bit of a fine line and i actually don't i don't like reports where you just get there are contaminants but a good report will say we've got these species likely to be contaminants because then as a clinician you can decide okay yes it's likely to be a contaminant but i'm looking at the dog it's really clinically unwell i think it's got a bacterial infection i'm going to go with that's not actually a contaminant so it it's kind of us giving back to you if we tell you what we're considering as contaminants, as well as you giving to us in terms of the information of what the sample is, so we know what we're expecting. And,
0: and when you're actually working out what that bacteria is, are there different ways that you do that now compared to um, compared to previously? And at that point, do you do you investigate what that bacteria is, or do you plate it again? kind of with diffusion or, or looking at, um, uh, at what sensitivities or resistance that bacteria has?
1: Yeah, so identification of bacteria has moved on a lot in the relatively recent past. In the last sort of five years or so, a really new technology that's called Malditoff that's looking at mass spectrometry has come in to look at almost a bacterial fingerprint. And it's a much more accurate way of distinguishing between some of our species that are actually quite similar on a plate and in the kind of traditional tests, but it really depends on the lab. So the MALDI TOF is what we call gold standard. Um, it basically works by breaking down that bacterial cell into lots of different sized pieces that have different weights and different charges. When they're run through an electric field, they're separated out, and it produces these kind of peaks on a graph. And the very fancy automatic software matches those peaks, looks for the fingerprint, and says yes, it's a. Actinobacillus. Yes, it's an E. coli and it gives you a specific species for most things. Now it's developed for human medicine. So there are some veterinary species that it's not so great at identifying, but overall it works pretty well. However, costs in the region of a quarter of a million pounds. um, So it's not something that every lab has access to. Um, Traditionally, phenotypic tests are still really useful and really good. And certainly my kind of judge of um, microbiology technicians is the ability to have an estimated guess based on benchtop testing what a species will be. Because I think of something like a Malditoff like a computer, uh, if you don't know what you're putting in in the first place, you don't have an idea, you can't tell if the answer it's spitting out is any good. You kind of need a ballpark of knowing. So on the benchtop tests you know things that might take you back to uni remembering about gram staining catalase testing coagulase testing indole all of these things build up a picture of what we call the phenotype so the phenotype is the way the bacteria act like we talk about phenotype in genetics for animals um and so yeah phenotyping is still really a mainstay of a lot of bacteriology now and a lot of reports will be based on a phenotype and i don't think that there's necessarily anything wrong with that at all. I think phenotyping is really useful. It's just when you get these odd species that maybe there's not great tests to distinguish them, or where you have two species that can act very similar, the Malditoff gives that more accurate distinguishment between them. But yeah, so when we've grown bacteria overnight... To decide what we're going to do with them in terms of susceptibility testing we do need an educated guess of what species of bacteria it is because we know that there are some drugs that we're not going to susceptibility test a gram positive bacterium against or a gram negative bacterium against because they just don't work and so to make the decision of which discs to put up or if you're doing MICs which plate to use in your machine You need to have a rough idea of what the species is, but you don't necessarily have to be 100% certain. So, most microbiologists will be able to pick out the common um, categories of bacteria. And actually, if they can't, a gram stain, which is the first kind of big distinguisher, can be done really simply and quickly in the lab. So, they can then plate out their susceptibility as well as doing whatever their confirmatory tests for species are at the same time. So, sort of day two, then, so we've got one day to grow overnight day two we should have our susceptibility test to read and we should have either our phenotype to read because most of those tests take overnight or if we've got a off that might have been done the day before because it only takes in the region of about an hour to get a species.
0: And so often when things are reported Sian so then have I suppose that the number of different um, uh, bacteria that that have been grown that think are um, are relevant to the to the clinical sample that's submitted and also um have some um, um, um antibiotics <clears throat> and they are different sort of resistance profiles sort of for them see so, see so it, it used to be kind of binary right say so they would either be sensitive or resistance or sometimes m- might have say intermediate sensitivity but yeah. but now um we're getting a lot more information and we're getting um, so you, um, more of a, a MIC. So maybe could you could you maybe explain how that has occurred? Um, so why we're we getting different um, different reports now?
1: Definitely. So MICs. So MIC stands for minimum inhibitory concentration, and. That's not a new concept. MICs have been around for years and years and years. You can see research papers looking at MICs. What's new and the reason why it's coming into our lab reports is that we now have automated systems to do it. So traditionally, MICs, you're creating a range of broths or a range of agar plates that contain different antimicrobial concentrations and you're plating your bacteria onto them. And you can imagine that making a whole pile of 20 different concentrations of agar plate or 20 different broths of different concentrations of antimicrobial, that takes time. It takes space. It takes money. And so it's not something that a diagnostic lab can be doing daily. It's something we can do in research. Um, I've done research work where you can, you know, make enough plates to cover 200 bacteria to do all at one go. That's fine. But as a diagnostic tool, it's new because we now have machines that have preloaded cards with different concentrations of antimicrobials in them that we can just seed with bacterial culture, put into the machine to incubate overnight, normally about 16 hours. And then it reads the plates and it tells us the answer. So MIC as a concept, is not new, but as a concept of a result I can give to a clinician. It's new. And the reason why it's great is because, as I said, you've got this um, range of concentrations of antimicrobial that we're testing. So for example, you might test between 0.5 milligrams per litre up to four milligrams per litre of of your antimicrobial. Whereas when we used to do disk diffusion testing, the disk is a fixed amount of antimicrobial. So we can say, is that fixed amount working or not? Because that's effectively what we're doing when we're doing a disk diffusion against our bacteria. But I can't really judge anything past that, what we call a breakpoint. I can just say it's either above the breakpoint, and the breakpoint is the measure at which we call an isolate resistant or susceptible, or it's below the breakpoint. Whereas with an MIC, I've got a number, I've got a quantitation. So I can say not only is it above or below, but how far above or below is it? Is it sitting right on the breakpoint? So although it's susceptible now, it's very close. Or is it sitting so far above the breakpoint? that it's resistant and it's so resistant that we're never going to be able to overcome that concentration, even with, you know, a local therapy. So it just gives that kind of more fine-tuning ability for your antimicrobials and it gives you more ability to compare them past the crude susceptible and resistant that we used to have with distribution testing so
0: would you mind just to sort of clarify then what the relationship between the breakpoint and the minimum inhibitory concentration is
1: yeah sure so a breakpoint has been determined in the lab effectively so a breakpoint has been determined based on and it's very specific based on the bacterial species, that we've got. Let's take a Staphylococcus pseudintermedius. So we know we've got a Staphylococcus pseudintermedius. It's then based on the particular antimicrobial that we're testing. So let's test something like fusidic acid. And I'm picking this because it was the topic of my PhD. So it's ingrained in my brain. Um, and then we have a host species. So this is where veterinary medicine becomes more difficult. If we were doing human medicine, we would have breakpoints established for almost every antimicrobial that will work against every pathogen, because the focus of research is in human medicine. In veterinary medicine, we will first look for a breakpoint in the species we're looking at, so a breakpoint designed for the dog, because that's based on the pharmacokinetics and pharmacodynamics that you get when you give your antimicrobial at the recommended concentrations. So all of it's specific to the treatment of that particular individual and the treatment of that particular individual with that antimicrobial for that bacterial pathogen. So that's they're very, very specific. And it comes out, so for fusidic acid, it comes out at one milligram per liter. So we know based on all of the bacteria we've looked at and research, normal, non-resistant Staphylococcus pseudonymius have MICs to fusidic acid much lower than one milligram per litre. They sit around the 0.03, 0.06 mark. We know that um, the bacteria that have the genes encoding for resistance sit at the two milligram per litre, four milligram, or going all the way up to 1024 milligram per litre mark. So when we take into account how much drug gets into the body system and how much drug we need to overcome the the bacteria themselves, we can make this breakpoint that says, are they wild type? So they don't have any of these resistance genes or do they have some of the resistance genes and we can't achieve those concentrations in the body to treat the infection
0: how, how can we tell though whether we can achieve those sort of concentrations in the body? here so if you so if you have a, 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 it's, a it's like a list of, of numbers isn't it that comes from the, the uh, yeah. antibiotic and then a list of numbers um, and then so how do you know whether whether that's appropriate um, whether the antibiotic that you've p- potentially put the patient on is a is appropriate or not
1: so that's where this break point has been interpreted for you on your lab report. So the breakpoints are determined by um, mainly we use either UCAS, which is European group, or CLSI, which is American group, that have determined these breakpoints. And they've got all of the pharmacological studies. They've got all the microbiological studies to say one milligram per litre is the concentration we need to kill it. So when we then look at our lab report, you'll see that you've got the actual MIC reported. So the number that was established, let's say for our staff of interest, it was 0.5 milligrams per litre. You'll then see that you've got another number, a string of S's, maybe an I and some R's, and then a final number. And what that's telling you is the range of concentrations, the range of antimicrobial concentration that that bacteria has been tested against. So it works from the lower number. So if the lower number in that example is 0.25, then it will go, say, S. that's 0.25, then 0.5, and it goes up doubling dilutions, up to 1, up to 2, up to 4. And the point at which your letters become an R, that is what the breakpoint is. So if you follow that along, you'll see that it becomes an R, that's where your breakpoint sits. And the capital letter that's in the list is the actual M-I-C, it represents the actual M-I-C of the bacteria that you're investigating. So it takes a little bit of getting your head round how it's laid out on the lab report, but it basically tells you, it gives you the information of every concentration that was tested, where the breakpoint is, so where do, would the bacteria be considered resistant, and what concentration did you get, where does it sit on that scale. And the nice thing about seeing where it sits on that scale means that I can compare then two antimicrobials, because if I've got an antimicrobial, if they're both susceptible, the absolute MIC value, whether it's 1, 2, 4, 16, It doesn't mean a lot to me as a clinician unless I'm a pharmacologist and I know exactly what concentration of antimicrobials getting into the bloodstream, which, let's face it, we don't in general. That would be far too many numbers to remember. So what it does is it says, okay, I know that they're both susceptible, but one of them comes out as susceptible at the concentration just below the first R. So it's just the susceptible side of the breakpoint. If I look at the other antimicrobial and there's actually three S's, so, we've got our result, three more S's, and then an R. Well, it's widely susceptible. It's a long way away from that breakpoint. So, that's where we can start to compare the susceptibility of our isolate to different antimicrobials in a clinically relevant way because we can say, OK, we assume if we're giving the clinical dose, and that's why it's all species dependent because the dose that you're using of amoxiclav is specific for the dog. It's therefore achieving a specific concentration in the bloodstream, which is how these breakpoints are developed. We can then compare it and say, actually, we should use this drug because it's we're going to have concentrations that are far higher than we need for this drug rather than the other one where it's on the borderline. So if we have lots of options of susceptibility, that means we can start to fine tune in that manner. Resistance, it becomes a little bit more difficult, obviously. And obviously, if something's resistant on a lab panel, Strictly speaking, as a microbiologist, I can say that doesn't mean that in every case the drug won't work because it doesn't work like that. Um, there are cases where you could use a drug that a bacteria is resistant to and it will work. And there are cases where you could use a drug that the bacteria is susceptible to and it won't work because the body's a wonderful thing and it doesn't play ball in all times. And neither do the bacteria. But as a guideline, if it shows resistant, then it's unlikely that that drug will work.
0: Well, wow. <clears throat> uh, it's it's good, and just uh, hopefully a lot of people when uh, they're not driving and trying to think about uh, this at the at the same time, and <laughs> um, the the mental mo- model might uh, might um, make you. Uh want to pull over so you um so that, that's that that's great shot so when should you so clinically if you um have because i suppose most of the time when a sample is submitted for microbiology clinically the clinician has placed that um animal on an antibiotic and i suppose yeah. they want to know should i continue with that or should i change it so and and do you think Um, that depends on the clinical improvement of the patient as well as the findings that you have. So if you have a patient that's improving... Or is this always going to be clinician dependent? Yeah. That should you continue with that antibiotic, or if you have a patient that um, is is not, you know, that um, is equivocal or, or or not showing the improvement that you want, that you should change based on on those results, or maybe that's a too difficult question to to answer.
1: No, I think no, I think actually, I think it's a really important concept because I think it's this combination of clinical. Um, picture clinical scenario and the microbiology report that you have to make your decisions on, the microbiology report doesn't stand on its own. You know, even if I tell you that you've got an amoxiclav resistant E. coli in the urine, if you're giving amoxiclav and you have been for the three days before you get your microbiology report back and the dog's improved, then let's say your report comes back and the only options are what we would consider higher tier antimicrobials, then I would say, no, you don't have a reason to change those just because of the microbiology report. If your treatment's working, it's working. Obviously, if it's not working, then you will want to be changing it to something. And you can use your microbiology report to guide where you might change it. The flip side as well is, let's say whatever you've used empirically, you've reached for something that is very broad spectrum. It's maybe considered a higher tier, but you've done it because of the clinical severity of the case, or you've done it because it's particularly difficult infection to treat. If your microbiology report comes back and suggests that there's actually something that's a lower tier, so it's something we would consider as a... um, Better antimicrobial to potentially use from a public health aspect, then definitely you should be considered de escalating. So, even if the dog's doing well on your, let's say, fluoroquinolone that was used empirically, if you've got a lower tier option on your report that shows that it should work based on susceptibility, then definitely de escalation is a really important concept and should always be considered. Flip side as well, if you've treated with antimicrobials clinically, the dog's better then just because your microbiology report says it shouldn't have worked or whatever, you should still consider, can we stop antimicrobials at this point? Just because you've got the microbiology report and it maybe looks a bit scary doesn't mean you shouldn't consider that actually clinically, the animal's not showing any signs of infection anymore. We can start to consider finishing our antimicrobial course. And certainly in human medicine, they are really reaching towards shorter and shorter courses for a lot of the sort of... um, common infections you see in practice, your things like your UTIs. They're, they're really trying to use shorter courses of antimicrobials. And so I think that there is um, a point to be made that the microbiology has to come in conjunction with that Clinical picture, which is obviously not what you want to hear from me, because you want me to tell you to, you know, read the report, tick the box, and it tells you exactly what to do. But it, it's just not that clear cut.
0: Yeah, that that's that's good in itself. Could, could I could I ask um, uh, as as well? So when you're, I, I suppose that um, if you're getting uh, thinking about sort of changing your. Your antibiotic based on the MICs that you have, because because one of them is um, a bit questionable. Now, some of the antibiotics that we that we use have a have a range of um, either doses or even frequency that you can you can give. So, when when they're working out um, the, um, the 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 break points for certain um, bacteria, is it is there a is there the lowest? um concentration of antibiotic that is used or or is it um uh or is it the 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 mid sample to get to that sort of therapeutic level or is it individually based so so it's it's i'm i'm looking at it completely wrong
1: it's definitely i think it is definitely um dependent on the antimicrobial and it's dependent on the studies that went into defining that uh, breakpoint on what concentration of drug they chose to treat with so it's that's a bit of a difficult um, and slightly controversial topic as well because there are cases where now in research we're thinking hmm do we actually achieve higher concentrations because if we push the dose higher because we know that we can because we've done more studies to show we can use higher doses of things like our penicillins and then we know that they're excreted into the urine. Does that mean that if we've got, say, a multidrug resistant staphylococcal urine infection, actually we can overcome what we would traditionally consider the break point and we could still treat that infection with something that says says resistant on the lab report, but can we actually treat it? But that is definitely a research direction currently rather than something we can use um, straight away based on our micro reports. But it's all about where the research is going. So the more research that's done on guiding different doses, so high doses or more regular doses, or in things like urine tract infections, where we know we get a potentiation of antimicrobials in the urine, um, that can guide to have specific breakpoints. So in the lab, some of our breakpoints, we have one breakpoint that says for IV administration and one breakpoint that says for oral administration. And that's because we know that because of absorption, we actually get different concentrations in the blood. And so uh, from the lab perspective, if I'm looking at my um, lab reporting, I actually need to choose which one I might base my report on. And I might therefore have to talk to the clinician. And that's something I get to do. Here, because I'm on site and I can talk to the to our hospital and I can liaise between the hospital and the lab to say, What are you considering for this treatment? And that's generally with the kind of slightly weird and wonderful treatments, um, especially ones where we're extrapolating from, say, human medicine. So we don't actually know a breakpoint in a dog, but we maybe want to use an antimicrobial that's not currently licensed for dogs, but we're maybe turning to it for a multi drug resistant infection. And so that kind of tailoring from that point of view is something that really. Warrants discussion with clinical microbiologists where possible. And certainly, that's where breakpoints will change over time as we have more information. And certainly, in the case of things like urinary tract infections, we might even have a specific breakpoint for E. coli in the urine because we know that for that drug, we can actually get a higher concentration in the urine and therefore our breakpoint will change. So, there are some things in the lab that will be automatically done for you because we know we had a urine sample. So, I can use the urine breakpoint. But if you give me a urine sample and you don't tell me that you think the animal's got a pyelonephritis, then I'm going to think that you might be treating a urinary tract infection, which will get urine concentrations of antimicrobial where it's concentrated. But actually, you might need to be basing it on tissue concentrations. So that comes back to that dialogue between the lab and the clinician that actually, the more information you can give to the lab, sometimes the more information they can give you back.
0: That's great. Um, So... um, with, with, with regard to uh, sort of then changing um, antibiotics, do you think that, that if someone wants to do that, they should probably phone the, the microbiology um, team them, themselves and, and talk through their case? Or do you think that that we, as long as it's sort of to de-escalate, then they should predominantly do that? Yeah. But not necessarily if there's one sample that has more of that sensitivity um, Um, sensitive difference compared to uh, the antibiotic that they've chosen?
1: Yeah. So I think if they're using, if if your empirical therapy is a first line, sort of first tier therapy, and you have susceptibility to it, and actually there's not a particularly obvious better option, and the dog is clinically improving, then stick with it. Um, I think if there's an opportunity to de-escalate, and you can identify that on the report, go for it. Even just asking Another vet's opinion of saying, I'm thinking I might actually be able to switch to this. What do you think? Two heads are better than one. It's nice to talk it through. I would say some labs have the setup to have that clinical discussion and some don't. So some labs you'll get through to somebody who has, who is a qualified vet or somewhere like here, obviously I'm here to talk to the clinicians some labs won't have that set up. And so you will be talking to someone who knows the microbiology very well, but they don't know the ins and outs of the clinical cases so well. So it really depends on who you're talking to as such. But that's the same with a lot of our, you know, questions over clinical cases, It's choosing who to talk to. But definitely, I think if you you are thinking of de-escalating but you're not quite sure, just talk it through with another practitioner. Does it make sense to them that you can de-escalate that case? Because generally, if you can explain why the de-escalation looks like it's possible, it probably is. Again, then, if you're looking at you need to escalate antimicrobial choice and you need to go to a third tier, then it all depends as well on any infection control protocols or anything you have in practice that are protecting the use of certain antimicrobials. Um, And again, it kind of works for me a bit like de-escalation. If you talk to somebody and you say, look, oh, I think I'm going to have to turn to something that's a bit more of a hard hitter. Do you think I'm right? Even if it's just one or two cases you do that, you get a feel for are you on the same page? Are you thinking the same thing? Um, And generally, if both of you look at the micro report and say, actually, yes, it does look like we need to use that, then you're probably going down the right line. And so I think for me, I think collaboration on these kind of more tricky microbiology reports is really useful. Um, But I would say if you if it looks to you like you can deescalate and you can think of a good reason for it, go for it. Because deescalation is always a good plan from a from a resistance development point of view.
0: And going on for that resistance to, um, uh, side of it, I mean, I suppose that the resistance has definitely increased from my limited understanding in the in the veterinary field. And so, I suppose there's never more time to be um, uh, to think more about the antibiotics that we that we choose. So, do you do you think that the uh, addition of of MICs and I suppose a, a different way of labs to report things is going to benefit the clinicians from? From being able to make these decisions to de-escalate, or do you think that it's it's going it's, it's going to take time for the interpretation of it and what to do um, change, and, and also with that as well, the um, I suppose the, not only the empirical antibiotics that are, are normally started, but also the length of time that's kind of reported in the in the literature from you know thirty forty years ago.
1: Yeah, I think that um, I think MICs. Oh it's a tricky one. I in an ideal scenario, yes, I think MICs do help with that because they just give you that little bit more information especially if you're weighing up they, they kind of tell you with a little bit more certainty about your lower tiers and so they might really make you think oh yeah look that's really susceptible maybe I can go with clindamycin in this case. The one thing my kind of the reason why I hesitate is because it does seem suddenly so much more complicated on a report suddenly where you were used to just getting a list of antimicrobials and almost a yes no list the onus is put back on you as a clinician to make your decisions which I think is lovely and I think as a clinician it's great to have more information to make decisions but it can look really overwhelming and that's where um taking a little bit of time to make sure that you do understand the structure of a report where i was talking about those kind of the two numbers that tell you the range that was tested and the letters that if you can get your head around how your reports and if you're sending to the same lab all the time they'll look pretty much the same if you can get your head around that that will help when you then get the tricky case that you actually do need to think about changing your antimicrobials and um, because realistically in first opinion practice although Mod- although resistance is increasing, it's still something that we will see in referral a lot more often than we see in first opinion practice. So it's not every sample is going to have this issue. Not every bacteria is going to come back as resistant, lots of things, and you have to make really tricky decisions. And a lot of your cases will be put on empirical therapy that is a first line therapy, and will probably come back as one of the best options anyway on the report. Um, but if you have taken the time to understand how the report's laid out, then when you do get that really tricky one, you won't be, first of all, trying to work out what does the report actually tell me? Because I always before I've just looked at the S's and the R's and ignored the rest of it. So, yeah, I think think long term, once everybody's got their head around what it means, it will really help because it does give us that ability to really fine tune our decisions. But um, short term... If people are getting sent lab reports that they don't really understand, that doesn't really help because actually it's going to make you less likely to want to read that lab report. You're just going to scan through for the antimicrobial the animal's on, check it's susceptible and ignore the rest because you think, well, I don't really understand. So as long as I'm pretty sure what I'm using works, I'll ignore everything else. And so that's, that's where I think it slightly falls down. So chatting to people more about what MICs are and how to interpret them in my opinion can only help, hopefully.
0: That's, that's really good. And and with the lab as well, so can you um, have a look at I suppose it depends on what sample where you are getting sent samples from, but can you see whether a pathogen sort of might change over time to bit get closer to that, that break point or whether and, and is is that used internally by labs?
1: Um I can probably only speak for our lab in that really and sort of other academic research linked diagnostic labs. Um, Yes, we certainly are using that. We're looking at our local resistance patterns. And I think it's really useful to look at your local resistance patterns and what drugs, you know, you have a range of first tier antimicrobials. But geographically, some areas you're going to see one of those first tiers is better than the others. So seeing your different lab reports will give you an idea of actually, in general, most of my staphylococci come back as more susceptible to clindamycin and so that's a good first line for me to use in my practice. Um, There are national reports in some countries as well where they report overall susceptibility from their um, samples. And they certainly look at the resistant bacteria and how the profile of the resistant bacteria is changing over time. We don't have that in the UK at the moment. But sort of Scandinavian countries are really far ahead in that kind of thing. And they're monitoring this development of resistance. I guess if you're thinking on on an individual case basis, it's really useful to just keep an eye. Obviously, there are loads of discussions to have about the clinical management if you're getting recurrent infections, because we know that there's probably something else going on that's predisposing to those recurrent infections. But in terms of infections that are cropping up not too irregularly, having a look at those lab reports, if it's the same species of bacteria, if you're seeing E. coli A few different times, and they're always being treated with antimicrobials. It's worth just having a look back. Does this one I'm seeing now look the same as the one I was seeing six months ago or a year ago? Does it look like the susceptibility pattern has changed? Because actually, when we use antimicrobials, we might increase the burden of resistance within the normal microbiota of that animal. And so we might see this slow change in the cultures that we're getting back from this animal towards resistance. So we might be able to say, We want to try and investigate further before just turning to antimicrobials. And certainly, I think a a big mainstay is this idea of dealing with what is going on underlying recurrent infections, whether they're once a month, once every two months, or once every six months. If we're getting the same infections with the same causative agent, that's not normal. Hopefully, we can delve a little bit deeper and find out if there's something going on that's predisposing to those infections.
0: Yeah, it's great. If I might sort of just ask one question that I probably forgot to ask at the beginning, when you're actually sending in um, a sample, do you want to know um, whether a patient has been on antibiotics or is currently on antibiotics? And if so, what sort of timeline is 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 that do you think important to you as in like when the last time it had antibiotics
1: so i guess if it's yeah definitely if the animal's currently on antimicrobials it's good to know that um it's also just good to keep that in your head as a reminder as a clinician as well because if we then get no growth or we get very limited growth we know that that might be affected by the antimicrobials the animal's on a relatively short term so three month roughly history of antimicrobials is really difficult literature does show that um, antimicrobials can have a really long-term effect on the microbiota. But I would say that three months is quite a good timeline for us to possibly be seeing changes that won't have been outcompeted yet. So knowing that this animal has had no antimicrobials in the last three months versus has had four courses of antimicrobials in the last three months just puts into the lab's head straight away and also cements in your head as you're writing the report, there might be a risk that we have a resistant pathogen. And The reason why that's really good for the lab is because it means we can be prepared to say, okay, whatever we grow, we know we want to get susceptibility testing done as soon as possible. We know that for that gram negative, we might want to be screening for something like an ESVL or a carbapenemase producer straight away in a way that we wouldn't necessarily want to do if it's the first cause, first case of infection for five years. So I think it does just give that kind of heads up that there might be something weird and wonderful going on. Um, and something multi-drug resistant. In the same vein, if it's an animal that has had a multi-drug resistant pathogen isolated in previously, then it's probably worth notifying the lab of that. If you know, okay, we know this has previously had a multi-drug resistant staff and an MRSP. Let the lab know because they might specifically put up a plate that will grow MRSP from the from straight off directly from the sample. And so we could then tell you the next day, yeah, it grew on the plate that only grows multi-drug resistant staffs. It doesn't grow non-multidrug-resistant staffs. We can't tell you this exact species quite yet, but we can give you a very good indication that what you're looking at is a multidrug-resistant pathogen. If we know we're looking for that, and there's a p- strong possibility it might be growing, we can tailor... How we plate the sample to those particular cases.
0: And can I ask on a, on a separate note with them um, with talking about multi-drug resistant um, bacteria that are isolated? Is there a a, a, a requirement in the UK? Because people listen, maybe in other countries as well. But is there a requirement uh, that you know of in um, for reporting those multi-drug resistant bugs? Or no, does it-
1: I'd probably be quite. Um, Unpopular to say, my opinion is we should. I would really like to know. But no, at the moment, there is no reporting requirement. Um, IDEX have quite a good um, little map you can look at of overall of submissions they've had across the across the UK. You can see kind of the rates of resistance to certain um, antimicrobials in certain species. So that's quite a nice way if you don't know from your own lab or from your own practice. It's a quite nice way of seeing as a ballpark um, how many multi drug resistant bacteria are being seen. As I said, so labs like ours, we can pull out that data and we can analyse that data for our own submissions. But so at the moment there is no national reporting here. Like there is in say in Scandinavia, um, MRSP, they had to report. If they had MRSP and there is a national report every year that tells you how much MRSP has been seen in clinical submissions. But in the UK, the only information we have on that is research generated.
0: Fair enough. Fair enough. So maybe something will change um, uh, in the future. Shana, Shana, have we? do you think we've missed anything particularly about um, this topic?
1: Um, the only thing I would add is um, there are just a few antimicrobials that you'll see on lab reports that we still might interpret based on these breakpoints, but they're drugs that we maybe only use topically so the best example for me is fucidic acid I started off life as a pretend dermatologist um, in my research and so these are we still might get fucidic acid on our lab report and it will have an interpretation it'll be down as resistant or susceptible for most lab reports it's still done with disc diffusion testing rather than MICs um, but there's very limited to what that means for topical therapy. So when we're thinking of superficial skin infections, we're thinking about um, eye, eye infections, things like eye ulcers. What does that mean? Because actually, when we're adding the drug directly to the site of infection, we're not giving an oral antimicrobial that has to get into the bloodstream and then has to get to the site of infection. If I'm treating superficial pyoderma with um, fusidic acid, I'm putting it straight onto the site of infection. So I'm putting a much higher concentration than is ever tested with these breakpoints. So there is no breakpoint. There is no interpretation for topical therapy. Um, And so kind of it's my passion because it was my research focus originally, but it's really kept you've got to be really careful interpreting those results. So where it's an antimicrobial that you're not thinking of using in that conventional parenteral manner, is not orally administered, be very wary about how you interpret that MIC result or that diffusion result regarding how you're going to use the antimicrobial. So you might be adding a lot more than the interpretation is based on. It's
0: good, good advice. Good advice. Um. To so, um. I think probably we'll, we'll wrap it up there then. Uh, yeah. Thank you so much, uh, Sean, for your time today. And um. Um. And um. Yeah, I'm. I'm sure we'll be grateful for you to to come back uh, and have a remote or even maybe physical conversation. One. one, one Time one in the day. future, one day. Um, thank you, Star.
1: Great to talk to you.
0: Thank you. So, and thank you for for listening. So, don't forget to hit the subscribe button on your generic fruit based device, and that way you don't even have to worry about missing a podcast. Don't forget to leave us a review, five star review on Apple Podcasts would be great. And don't forget to tell your friends, vet friends, or any others. We 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 welcome anybody. Um. So we'll place some show notes on the RVC pages. if you just type in RVC Clinical Podcast into your search engine of choice, it should be top of the tree. If you have any comments or suggestions for this podcast, please get in touch. You can either email dbarfield at rvc.ac.uk or tweet at Tom Barfield. Until next time,
1: bye bye.